Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Dominant position in government that he craved. This resistance was led by Bedford, in alliance with other lords of the Royal Council. In December 1422, during the first Parliament of the new reign, Gloucester was summoned to be told he had been awarded the title of Protector and Defender of the Kingdom of England and the English Church and Principal Counselor of the Lord King. Even if it sounded grand, this title was designed to be strictly limited, and it would lapse whenever the more senior Bedford visited England. Neither Gloucester nor anyone else was going to be a lieutenant, tutor, governor, or regent. The Duke, was simply the preeminent man in what would prove to be a very carefully constructed conciliar protectorate. The first such experiment in English history, and one that acted under a very singular fiction. Government was carried out on Henry's behalf, but it also continued as if the child king were in fact a fully functioning public figure. Gloucester was bitterly disappointed. Not even the large salary he was awarded to take up his new role could mask the fact that he had been passed over in a manner that suggested not even his own brother, with whom he maintained generally good relations, considered him fit to govern England independently. Yet, to his credit, Gloucester didn't withdraw from politics or begin to think of rebellion. Despite the sting of personal rejection, he appears to have recognized the same facts that had struck everyone else close to the English crown. That Henry V's death left England in a very dangerous position, and that, without a collective attempt to create a stable form of minority government that could last for a decade or more, the realm could very easily end up in the same disastrous condition as that which had afflicted their French neighbors across the sea. Seen in this light, the decision to pass over Gloucester in favour of a form of conciliar rule, serving the conceit that the baby king was a genuine ruler, was both a piece of wholly artificial constitutional backbending and a stroke of brilliance. King Henry VI presided over Parliament for the first time at Westminster in the autumn of 1423, when he wasn't yet two years old. A medieval parliament had no power of its own to speak of, save that derived from the sovereign, whether he was a baby, a grown man, or a dribbling geriatric. On Friday, November 12th, therefore, Queen Catherine prepared to bring her son from his nursery at Windsor down through the affluent towns and villages that stood on the north bank of the Thames to Westminster, where he would meet representatives of his subjects in the time-honoured fashion. Windsor was grander than Eltham, a fairy tale castle imbued with all the pious chivalric trappings of English kingship. 
a moated and walled forest of towers and turrets, with glorious painted chambers and sumptuous living quarters, as well as the magnificent chapel of St. George, home to the Order of the Garter. It was from this tranquil place that in the second week of November, the twenty-three-month-old king, a toddler now, with the beginnings of his own will, was about to be removed. Henry wasn't impressed by the prospect of the trip, although the start of the journey was smooth and the infant king was well attended by his nurses and nannies, the travelling didn't much agree with him. After the first day on the road, the royal party spent the night at Staines. Then, on the morning of Sunday, November 13th, as Henry was carried toward his mother, seated in her coach and ready to travel onward to Westminster via Kingston, he threw a royal tantrum. He cried and shreamed, that is, shrieked and thrashed about and wept, and wouldn't be carried further, wrote one London chronicler. Wherefore he was born again into his inn, and there bowed the Sunday all day. Only twenty-four hours later, after a day of mollification in his lodgings, would the toddler consent to be taken on toward Parliament. Finally, on November 18th he arrived, was presented to the realm on his mother's lap, and listened, presumably with no interest whatsoever, to the Speaker, the lawyer and MP John Russell, expressing the thanks of all concerned for their great comfort and gladness to see your high and royal person to sit and occupy your own rightful see and place in your Parliament. If all this seemed rather a strained and strange political dance, it nevertheless had profound importance to the men who performed it. Kingship was a sacred and essential office, and in the 1420s every effort was made to draw the young Henry into its symbolic rituals. Day-to-day -day government was carried out by a council with clear rules and a fixed membership. Seventeen councillors were initially appointed, Articles of conduct for their meetings were agreed, and a quorum of four was deemed necessary to make decisions binding. The council kept detailed minutes, including the names of those who had made decisions, and it limited itself to carrying out only the essential functions of kingship. It sold offices and titles only for the financial benefit of the crown, rather than for private political patronage. It held absolute and secret control over the royal finances. It was as close to a disinterested political body as could be conceived. Yet the king was still brought into play whenever it was possible. In the first month of Henry's reign, a solemn ceremony had been held at Windsor to mark the transfer of the Great Seal of England, the essential tool in royal government, out of the hands of the old king's chancellor, Thomas Langley, Bishop of Durham. The baby was surrounded in his chamber by the greatest nobles and bishops of the land, who watched carefully as the chancellor delivered to King Henry the late king's great seal of gold in a purse of white leather sealed with the said chancellor's seal, and the king delivered the same by the Duke of Gloucester's hands to the keeping of the keeper of the chancery rolls, who took it with him to London. The next day the seal was taken to Parliament, and solemnly handed over to a clerk of the Royal Treasury for safekeeping.
It was pure theatre. But the fabric of English government was materially sustained when the king's soft and tiny fingers passed over the fine white leather of the seal's purse. The same ceremony was repeated nearly two years later at Hartford Castle, when the king was again called upon to hand the seal over to his great-uncle, Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, who had been appointed Chancellor in his turn. When the king was five years old, the lords of his council recorded in their minutes an astonishingly clear summary of their position. Howbeit that the king does now be of tender age, nevertheless the same authority resteth, and is at this day in his person, that shall be in him at any time hereafter. This attempt to affect personal kingship was at times comical in its confection. Official letters survive written in the very first years of Henry VI's reign that were framed not as instructions from older men ruling on behalf of the baby, but with the pretense that the baby himself was a fully functioning adult, dictating his royal dispatches in person. One such, written to the Duke of Bedford in France on May the 15th, 1423, when the king was still a couple of weeks short of eighteen months old, began, Right trusty and most beloved uncle, we greet you well with all our heart, and signify unto you, as for your consolation, that at the time of the writing of this, thanked by God we were in perfect health of person, trusting to our Lord it as we desire, in semblable wise ye so be. Five years later, the king was described in Parliament as showing signs of readiness to rule. The king, blessed be our Lord, is far gone and grown in person, in wit and understanding, and like with the grace of God to occupy his own royal power within a few years. He was six years old. In fact, conciliar government continued throughout the 1420s, in areas where an adult king would traditionally have intervened in person, such as arbitrating disputes between the great nobles and the shires, a system of mutual oath-taking served to keep the peace. It wasn't always straightforward, but order was generally maintained. Only in 1425 did a personal feud threaten to destabilize the administration completely, when a dispute flared up between two of the most powerful and potentially dangerous men in England, the frustrated protector Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and the king's rich and influential great-uncle, Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester. On October the 29th, 1425, the City of London boiled with excitement. A new mayor, John Coventry, had been elected and was taking office, but as he sat down to his official feast... He received an urgent message summoning him with all the most important men in the city to a meeting with the Duke of Gloucester. When he arrived in the Duke's presence, he was instructed to secure London as swiftly as possible for the night ahead. He was told that a large armed force was gathering under the leadership of Beaufort on the south side of London Bridge, in the suburb of Southwark. Archers, men-at-arms and a whole array of other men loyal to the bishop were said to be preparing to invade London the next day, determined to do harm to anyone loyal to Gloucester 
and to cause mayhem in the city. A long, sleepless night lay ahead. The citizens were told to keep watch and to prepare themselves for a fight. The background to the quarrel was complex. Gloucester and Beaufort were both capable and experienced men, with vital roles in the minority government. In the absence of the Duke of Bedford, they bore between them a large responsibility for keeping the peace, but their views on foreign policy and domestic issues frequently clashed, producing mutual suspicion and hostility. Gloucester's outsized personality was well known, but Beaufort was also an imposing figure. The second son of Henry VI's great-grandfather, John of Gaunt, and his third wife, Catherine Swinford, he had been made a cardinal and legate by Pope Martin V in 1417. The cardinal's personal power and wealth came from his diocese of Winchester, the richest in England, and his public standing came from a long life of service. At fifty, he had held high office in England for more than twenty years, often helping to prop up crown finances by means of vast and generous loans. In 1425, he was the Chancellor of England and probably the leading advocate of the conciliar system of government. Naturally conservative, Beaufort had likely helped coordinate opposition among the lords of the council to Gloucester's regency. All this meant that the two men were, as one chronicler laconically put it, not good friends. By 1425, their animosity and mutual suspicion were intense. The principal fault lay with Gloucester, who, the previous summer, had led a popular but extremely unwise military expedition to the Low Countries in pursuit of his wife's claim to the county of N.O. Unfortunately, the man who now held Gloucester's wife's possessions was her first husband, John of Brabant, who was supported by the Duke of Burgundy a key ally of the English in their war with Armagnac, France, and a man whom Beaufort had spent a great deal of time and effort courting. That Burgundy was greatly upset and antagonized by Gloucester's heedless aggression was bad enough. To make things worse, the campaign was a total failure. It also stirred up violent anti-Flemish feeling in London, which bubbled over into xenophobic riots and disturbances in the streets. Beaufort, as Chancellor, was left to try to calm the capital. He appointed a new keeper of the Tower of London, one Richard Woodville, as a precautionary peacekeeping measure, but this was interpreted as an attempt to intimidate the citizens by putting the fortress that loomed over the city in the hands of a government stooge, and had the effect of arousing still more popular ire. By 1425, Cardinal Beaufort had become the chief public enemy in the capital, perceived to be a friend of foreigners and enemy of native Londoners. Thus it was, as on the evening of October the 29th, tensions exploded. Beaufort had come to believe that it was his cousin's intention to travel from London to Eltham to take personal command of the young king, a symbolic appropriation of the source of power that would have amounted to a full coup d'etat. It's unlikely that Gloucester really meant to kidnap the king, but Beaufort wasn't prepared to gamble on the duke's trustworthiness. 
He had thus garrisoned Southwark, and, when day broke over a wakeful city, the citizens rushed to the riverbank to see that the south side of London Bridge had been barricaded, with huge chains drawn across it, and heavily armed men standing guard at windows. As it had been in the land of war, as though they would have fought against the king's people and breaking of the peace. On the north side of the bridge, Gloucester and London's new mayor had closed the city gates. It was a standoff whose most likely conclusion appeared to be a deadly confrontation on the bridge itself. There was a panic throughout the city. All the shops in London were shut in one hour, wrote one breathless chronicler. Yet battle was never joined. There was enough passion on both sides of the Thames to have foamed the eddies beneath London Bridge's narrow arches with blood, but England luckily had cooler heads than those of the two disgruntled uncles of the king. Chief among them were Henry Chicherley, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Pedro, Prince of Portugal and Duke of Coimbra, a much-travelled cousin of King Henry, who was then staying in England as an honoured guest of the court. They led frantic negotiations throughout the day on October 30th, their messengers riding eight times between the opposing camps until eventually a truce was brokered. Bad blood lingered on both sides. The next day, Beaufort wrote an indignant letter to his nephew John, Duke of Bedford, in France, begging him to return and take command of the troubled regime. As ye desire the welfare of the king, our sovereign lord, and of his realms of England and of France, and your own weal, that is, well-being, and ours also, hasten you hither, he wrote, for by my troth, if ye tarry, we shall put this land in adventure with a field, that is, a battle. Such a brother ye have here, God make him a good man. Bedford returned in January and spent a year restoring calm. This was a significant act. In a sense, his return to mediate between his sparring kinsmen had the Duke playing surrogate king. But it worked. Cardinal Beaufort resigned as Chancellor, his attention soon diverted by instructions from the Pope to lead a military crusade against the Hussites, a reforming sect of heretics in Bohemia. Yet Beaufort's climb down didn't mean that Gloucester was allowed to feel he had emerged victorious. Under Bedford's instruction, the regulations that had established the careful conciliar government of 1422-24 to 24 were reenacted, and in January 1427, two separate meetings were held in the Star Chamber at Westminster and Gloucester's Inn in London, where Bedford and Gloucester swore to the assembled lords of the council on the Holy Gospels that they would support a conciliar form of government. Both agreed they would be advised, demanded, that is, dealt with, and ruled by the lords of the council, and obey unto the king and to them as for the king. Gloucester evidently gave his oath in bad faith, for less than one year later he would again demand an expansion of his powers over domestic government, huffily threatening to boycott all future parliaments unless he was granted what he desired. Yet, once again, he would be unequivocally slapped down, told in Parliament to satisfy himself with the powers that the realm had deemed sufficient for him, 
and asked forcefully to confirm that you desire no greater power. In the face of every serious crisis of authority, a general commitment to preserving and defending royal government triumphs. Nevertheless, no matter how diligently the principles of conciliar rule were observed, royal government without the king could only ever be temporary, and each challenge to the existing order inevitably tested the ability of all around the council table to preserve their constitutional pact. The crisis of 1425-27 to illustrated precisely why there was such eagerness to see in the child king the ability to occupy his own royal power within a few years. Recalling Bedford from France had been a desperate measure that wouldn't prove practical or desirable to repeat. In short, as the 1420s progressed, it became very clear that Henry would have to grow up, or be forced to grow up as rapidly as could be managed. Yet it wouldn't be domestic affairs that prompted Henry's most significant advancement. Rather, it was events across the Channel that impelled England's surrogate rulers to thrust the first real vestiges of kingship upon a seven-year-old boy. Chapter 3 Born to be King On August the 17th, 1424, 8,000 men stood ranked together on the plain outside the fortified town of Venui in eastern Normandy and braced themselves for the charge. Opposite them bristled a massive army, loyal to the Dauphin, or, as he would have it, Charles VII of France. Charles himself wasn't present, but his distant cousin, Jean, Count of Aumale, a twenty-eight-year-old prince of the French blood, who had been fighting the English since his teenage years, commanded between fourteen and sixteen thousand troops, all heavily armed and prepared to fight to the death. Above Omar's army blew flags and pennons representing men of various origins. Frenchmen stood shoulder to shoulder with six and a half thousand Scots men-at-arms and archers, and a contingent of Spaniards, all of whom were flanked most menacingly of all by two divisions of cavalry from Lombardy, a region of northern Italy famous for producing the finest armour and the most terrifying and stoutly protected mounted warriors in Europe. The juddering approach of these powerful and heavily shielded horses, together with the bright glint of the lances and breastplates of their riders, was enough to strike mortal fear into the hearts of any man who saw them. There may have been as many as two thousand of these galloping agents of death in the French army, the wide, unprotected plains of Vernouille, were the perfect territory for them. It was a fearsome sight. The eight thousand men who prepared to confront these fearsome horsemen and the thousands of infantry they accompanied were an army of Englishmen and Normans under the command of John, Duke of Bedford. The French regent led his army wearing a surcoat decorated with both the white crosses of France and the red of England, a potent sign of the dual monarchy he represented. Over the top, he wore the blue velvet robes of the Order of the Garter. Beside him in the field stood Thomas Montacute, Earl of Salisbury, 
a grizzled veteran who, at thirty-six, was one of the most famous soldiers in Europe. They formed an impressive pair of leaders, but for all their personal honour and experience, they couldn't ignore the facts of the battlefield, which seemed overwhelmingly to favour the enemy. Bedford and Salisbury's men were arrayed to anticipate the danger that the cavalry in particular would pose. An armoured horse and rider charging at full speed could just as well knock a soldier to the ground and crush him as gore him with a thrust of a lance. The force of hundreds of cavalry arriving at the same time could scatter an army into terrified chaos before the hand-to-hand -hand fighting even began. So, just as at the Battle of Agincourt, the English archers protected their lines by hammering sharp wooden stakes into the ground as vicious obstacles to check the cavalry charge. The large body of English and Norman men-at-arms, dismounted knights who fought in armour with swords, axes and daggers, were grouped together in one huge division. Horses and baggage wagons were tied together behind them, to create further defensive barricades. The rest was entrusted to God. The battle began, as expected, with a charge of the Lombard cavalry, who hurtled toward Bedford and Salisbury's centre. They collided with such force that they drove straight through the middle of the English line, splitting the entire army in two emerging at the rear and proceeding to attack a lightly armoured reserve force who had been kept back to guard the baggage train. The reservists leapt on their horses and fled from the battlefield in fear. The Lombards gave murderous pursuit. Behind them, the French and Scottish men-at-arms waded toward the now-broken line of English foot-soldiers and the chaotic, one-to-one -one crowded fighting known as the Melee began. The battle was a bloody one. No one could tell who was winning, wrote a Parisian diarist, who wasn't an eyewitness to Verneuil, but managed to capture in one phrase the reality of so many medieval battles. As soon as the cavalry charge had passed, the Duke of Bedford is said to have exhorted his troops to fight not for winning or keeping worldly goods, but only to win worship in the right of England. Worship was a medieval concept perhaps best translated as honourable respect and gentility. Thereafter he showed them the way. Bedford fought manfully with a pole-axe, and Salisbury displayed the martial skill and bravery that had made him a hero of the French wars. It was a desperate fight, waged with violent intensity on both sides. At one point the English standard, the flag that marked the central position of the army, fell to the ground. Traditionally, this was a sign that an army was defeated, but a Norman knight threw himself into the French lines and managed single-handedly to retrieve it. The day was eventually won by this sort of courage. Bedford's men simply ground their way to victory in hand-to-hand -hand combat rather than by following any orders of tactical military brilliance. Noble-blooded men-at-arms fought shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with peasant-born archers, all devoted to the same cause. They managed to slaughter enough of the French and Scots to ensure that when the Lombards returned to the field following their rout of the English reserve, 
they found the battle already over, and English horsemen now thundering about a broken enemy, dispatching anyone within reach as they tried to flee. It had been a most extraordinary victory. Accounts of the battle credit Bedford with generalship at its purest and most inspirational. More than 7,000 French and Scots were massacred in the fields of Normandy that day. Some of the Dauphin's finest commanders were killed, including Omal, and the two Scottish leaders, the Earls of Buchan and Douglas. Several others were taken prisoner. When Bedford returned to Paris to give thanks for his victory at Notre Dame, the people of the city turned out dressed all in red and cheered him in the streets. He was received, said one writer, as if he had been God. The Battle of Vernouille was the military high point of John, Duke of Bedford's regency in France, and of English fortunes on the continent as a whole. For the Duke's reputation, it was a triumph. He had won against the odds, seemingly through the sheer application of honour, bravery, and personal skill. It was a fitting triumph for a man who would always strive above all other things to preserve the memory of his eldest brother, Henry V. Vernouille also fit well with another of Bedford's great devotions to the cult of St. George. The portrait of the Duke in the Bedford Hours, a sumptuously illustrated devotional text that he commissioned in 1423, shows him kneeling in fine embroidered robes before the solemn figure of his favourite saint, who wears full armour on the robes of the Order of the Garter. The victory seemed to give the Almighty's own approval to the cause of the dual kingdom, a sign that all the lives and all the money that had been spent by the English pursuing the dreams of Henry V and his Plantagenet forebears had been justified. If Vernouille was the apex of England's military fortunes and of Bedford's personal command, the years that followed comprised a slow and painful descent from glory, victory, and supremacy. The occupiers sought with increasing futility to convince first the enemy and then themselves that the English Kingdom of France was something that could be realistically maintained. It isn't hard to understand why Henry V, on his deathbed, had recommended his brother for the Regency of France. Tall, strong-limbed, and physically imposing, with a large beak-like nose, the Duke was level-headed and conspicuously faithful. He was deeply pious, and, although capable of severity and even cruelty to those who offended him, genuinely committed to fair governance and the provision of justice. He had a good understanding of the realities of occupation, and, in Normandy in particular, he strove to govern through the native institutions, employing Normans in positions of power and making sure that large numbers fought in the armies that defended their territory and Charles VII's forces. Although, until Venui, Bedford lacked a major military victory, he was trusted and aided by experienced and tough English war captains such as Salisbury, Sir John Fastolf, Thomas Lord Scales, Sir William Oldhall, and John Talbot. Bedford was also personally invested in the wider politics of the French wars. 
He was married to Anne of Burgundy, the sister of England's most important foreign ally, Duke Philip, and together the couple established a stunning court. It gathered in Bedford's numerous houses in Paris, Rouen, and elsewhere, all of which fairly groaned with the vast collections of art, books, treasure, tapestries, and religious vestments to which Bedford had long devoted himself. As a later 15th-century chronicler would write, the Duke physically represented the person of the King of France and England, and he made sure that he lived up to the image his position demanded. The position, however, wasn't a simple one. The English Kingdom of France was on the face of it the fullest occupation of its sort in Europe for nearly 400 years, since William the Conqueror had invaded and conquered Anglo-Saxon England in 1066. The Anglo-Burgundian alliance controlled nearly half the landmass of the realm, from the county of Flanders in the north to the Duchy of Gascony in the south, and from the borders of Brittany in the west to the banks of the River Meuse in the east. A heavy garrison policy in Normandy had entrenched English rule across the duchy. In addition to the men who could be summoned from these garrisons to fight on the front line, a regular stream of hired soldiers, contracted for six months or a year at a time, swelled the English forces during the campaigning season. The twenty-one-year-old Dauphin was exiled from the sacred heart of his own realm as the English flag flew over Rouen, the capital of Normandy, and the three holiest sites of French kingship, Rands, where French kings were consecrated, Paris, where they ruled, and Saint-Denis, where they were laid to rest. Newly minted French coins bore the arms of both France and England, an angel resting a hand on each. Meanwhile, laws had been passed in Normandy forbidding any reference to the enemy as Frenchmen. Those who opposed the English occupiers were only to be known by their factional name of Armagnacs, while Charles VII was to be described merely as he who calls himself the Dauphin. Punishments for flouting the new rule, whether in speech or in writing, were severe. A fine of ten livres tournoises, five hundred and eighty-three pounds, would be levied for a first offence by a nobleman, and a hundred sous, 292 pounds for a commoner, with a tariff increased tenfold for a second offence, rising to confiscation of all goods for a third. These were vast sums, equal to many years' income. If offenders couldn't pay, they were to have their tongues pierced or their foreheads branded. Yet English authority, dominant as it was, couldn't be described as universal. For as long as the Dauphin was at large, there was an alternative centre of political power in France. Without a full military victory, Bedford couldn't claim full legitimacy for English rule, a state of affairs further undermined by the fact that Pope Martin V adamantly refused to endorse the Treaty of Troyes, denying the full moral weight of the Church to Henry VI's claim to the crown. There was a lean, dangerous Norman resistance movement. Gangs of brigands roamed free, 
kidnapping, robbing, extorting, looting, burning property and taking, and sometimes torturing, hostages. These insurgents combined a basic self-help ethic and criminal instinct with the timeless righteous resentment of a conquered people. One band of thieves and robbers in Normandy, led by the brigand captain Jean d'Alais, didn't balk at kidnapping monks or torturing women by forcing them to drink vast amounts of water until their stomachs and intestines ruptured. Alais' crew robbed for personal gain, but also wore uniforms and swore a general oath to do everything in their power to damage and injure the English. So, as Bedford waged war to defend English authority, to pacify the population in the conquered lands, and to attempt to push the Armagnacs farther south, below the banks of the River Loire, he also embarked upon a propaganda campaign designed to appeal to the minds of all Frenchmen living under the nominal rule of the young king across the water, who, in French regnal terms, was to be known as Henri II. Little did Bedford know that the means by which he carried out this campaign would be much imitated in England, many decades after his death. In 1425, a canon from Rance was forced to seek a pardon from the English regime for visiting the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris and vandalizing a large bill poster that had been hung on the wall by Bedford's orders. The image he had damaged was a family tree illustrating King Henry VI's descent from the ancient kings of both England and France. It had been placed there on the orders of the Duke of Bedford and it was one of many such posters which had been mass-produced and distributed about France in order to convince the common people that in Henry and his representative Bedford they had a ruler who was king not merely by right of conquest, but also by blood. Throughout the occupied territories, English genealogies were distributed as handbills or hung in churches and cathedrals to capture the eye and, it was hoped, the imagination of the common people. We know what the Notre Dame family tree probably looked like from a later copy made on the order of John Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury, during the 1440s. It was both complicated and alluringly simple. At the top was a roundel showing Louis IX of France, Saint-Louis as he had been known since his canonization in 1297, the pious and magnificent Capetian king who had reigned in the 13th century. Behind the roundel was a large teardrop-shaped background decorated with tiny fleur-de-lis. Beneath Louis came his descendants, Philip III and Philip IV, followed by Philip IV's four children, Louis X, Philip V, Charles IV, and Isabella. The last generations in the house of Capet. Meanwhile, running down either side of the poster were two subsidiary lines of descent. On the left was a house of Valois, on the right the English royal house of Plantagenet, beginning with Edward I. On the English side, the table showed Philip IV's daughter, Isabella, marrying Edward II of England in 1308. 
following that union came an apparently direct line of descent from Isabella to Henry V. In neat symmetry on the French side, the title of the House of Valois was shown to descend from Philip VI to Catherine de Valois. Catherine meets Henry V at the bottom of the poster. Their marriage under the Treaty of Troyes depicted in neat, diagrammatic form. And from those two apparent scions of the royal houses, out popped the last image in the table, Henry VI himself, sitting regally upon a throne with angels swooping down to place two crowns upon his head. The message was clear. Henry VI was King of France because of who he was, not what his father's armies had done. A claim staked out in blood was more permanent and sacred, and Henry's emergence at the end of a lineage begun with the holy figure of Saint Louis implied that his very being was a source of unity rather than division. He was a true heir of France's holiest ruler, his destiny to be the restorer of a divided house. And all of this was done not by conquest, but by rightful inheritance. The tidiness and symmetry of the genealogy and the historical story it told gave the poster an intrinsic, satisfying beauty. Posters like this were usually accompanied by a poem composed by one of Bedford's clerks, Lawrence Callot, which outlined the claim in more detail. In England, the poem was translated by the court poet John Lydgate, its content very little changed. To quote Lydgate's version, the poem praised Henry the Sext, of age nigh five-year wren, born to be king of worthy Remy's too. It then made direct reference to the genealogy it accompanied, and proclaimed at great length Henry the Sixth to be an heir of peace by just succession. This figure maketh clear demonstration that this Harry in the eighth degree is to Saint Louis, that is, Louis the Ninth, son and very heir, that this Harry standing in the line through God's hand and purveyance divine is justly born to void all variance or to be king of England and of France. Like the dynastic diagram it commented upon, the poem, both Callot's version and Lydgate's translation, was rather elegant. It was also a total deception, fudging numerous genealogical facts and pointedly ignoring the French principle of Salic law, which dictated that the crown could never pass through a female. In a limited sense, this didn't matter. As punishment for his act of vandalism, the clerk from Rance was forced to pay for two new copies of Henry's doctored family tree. But in the broader scheme of politics, it mattered very much. It wasn't bloodstock that would decide who triumphed in France, but blood spilled on the battlefield. Although the Duke of Bedford was forced to split his attention between England and France in order to keep order between his brother and his cousin, in the aftermath of Verneuil, the war effort continued broadly successfully, so that by September 1428, the Dauphin's forces had been pushed back almost wholly beyond the River Loire. That month, English forces began a siege of the town of Orléans, 
It ought to have been a straightforward matter, but it proved to be the point from which the whole English position started to deflate, thanks to the improbable intervention of a young woman called Jeanne d'Arc, usually anglicised to Joan of Arc, nicknamed La Pucelle, or The Maid. The political confidence and propaganda value she offered the Dauphin and his allies would prove to be worth more to the French cause than any number of dynastic handbills. The army that besieged Orléans was commanded directly by Salisbury, with an authority that stood largely independent from Bedford's. This arrangement had been made in England by the Duke of Gloucester, who envisioned a much more aggressive foreign policy than most of the rest of the council, particularly Bedford and Beaufort. Bedford's conservative strategy was to attack the relatively lightly defended town of Angers, but this advice was ignored as Salisbury and his large, well-equipped and handsomely paid-for army instead marched 150 miles farther up the Loire to attack the far more difficult and prestigious target of Orléans. Orléans was a large city, stoutly defended both by the geography of the Loire and a series of massive walls, gates and towers. Salisbury stormed the nearby countryside, cutting off Orléans from the neighbouring settlements of Jargeau, Meung and Beaugency. Then he besieged the town, firing on its walls with cannons and instructing his miners to dig below its fortifications. All seemed promising, until, as a long siege through the winter months beckoned, disaster struck. Salisbury was surveying the town's defences on October the 27th, when he was hit by debris thrown up by a stone cannonball fired across the river from the turrets of Orléans. Shards of flying masonry tore off half the flesh from his face, a mortal injury from which he took a full agonising week to die. Salisbury's death was a disaster. He was a noble lord and a worthy warrior among all Christian men, wrote the author of the Brute Chronicle. The English were from this point committed to a lengthy siege, but had lost the only commander in their ranks who was capable of winning it. Salisbury was replaced by William de la Pole, the 32-year-old Earl of Suffolk, a valiant and experienced soldier, but not of the same stature as the dead man he replaced. The English attempted to rally under Suffolk, battering the walls of Orléans with guns and fortifying the countryside where they could, to make it as inhospitable and dangerous as possible to any who might think of coming to the aid of the citizens. But there remained a basic shortage of men. The English couldn't storm the heavily defended city. Indeed, they remained unable even to surround its entire circumference. Inside Orléans, the townsmen settled in for a long winter siege. The English beyond the walls did what they could to prevent anyone passing in or out. The winter months ground by in a long, tedious and uncomfortable stalemate. Then, at the end of February, Joan of Arc appeared. The seventeen-year-old illiterate peasant girl had travelled from Doremy in southeast France to the Dauphin's court at Chinon, 
disguised beneath drab grey male clothes and a pudding-bowl haircut. She had been driven, she later said, by divine voices that had been guiding her actions since the age of thirteen. She believed it was her mission to raise an army, relieve the siege of Orléans, and escort the Dauphin to Reims in order to have him crowned King of France. At Chinon and Poitiers, she was repeatedly interrogated by Charles's clerics, who were puzzled by this curious, intrepid, and determined countryside maid. In the end, they decided that there was little to be lost by testing her out. Joan was granted her wish. In late April, she dressed in male armour and rode to Orléans aboard a white horse. Behind her was an army several thousand strong. Beside her was a group of priests. An ancient sword, later rumoured to be that of Charles Martel, the legendary eighth-century king of the Franks, hung at her waist. They reached the city on April the 29th, and found the besieging forces' lines weak and undersupplied. When the English first heard about Joan, they scoffed and screwed up their faces in disgust. A woman, riding in male armour, with her hair cropped short, was nothing short of abominable. Cross-dressing was forbidden by biblical law, and Joan's appearance seemed to be yet another sign of the decadence and godlessness of the French. Joan had dictated letters to the English from the Dauphin's court some weeks before her arrival at Orléans. In her letters, she warned Suffolk and his men to clear out of the occupied lands or lose their heads by her hand. At the time, this had been treated as an absurdity, and Joan was dismissed as nothing more than an armagnac whore. Yet now, here she was armed to the teeth, bursting with godly zeal and backed by a substantial body of troops with which she aimed to drive the English away from the walls of Orléans and relieve the long and miserable siege. On her arrival, Joan wasted little time. Her men attacked the English where their thinly spread lines were feeblest, to the east of the city, where a single, small fortification was easily overwhelmed by a concerted French assault. With almost astonishing ease, a hole was punched in the siege lines, and it remained open long enough for the radiant Joan to gallop into an overjoyed city, waving a white flag, and resembling, to the citizens at least, a vision sent from heaven. She was given a townhouse for her lodgings, and then remarkably, began to direct relief operations from behind Orléans' long battered walls. With Joan inside the town and her army outside, led by Jean, Count of Dunois, a man better known by his sobriquet, the Bastard of Orléans, operations to relieve the town began in earnest. On May the 4th, the French army began to raid and burn English siege fortifications, starting at the weakest point in the east, the same spot where Joan had been spirited in behind the walls. In one day's fighting, the bastard of Orléans' men did enough damage to open a permanent route in and out of the town. This was a serious blow to Suffolk's siege effort. Six months of numbing boredom, during which the English had tried to starve their opponents into submission, was ended 
in twenty-four hours. The next day, Jones sent another message to the enemy to warn them that this was only the beginning. You men of England, you have no right in this kingdom of France. The King of Heaven orders and commands you through me, Joan de Pucelle, to abandon your strongholds and go back to your own country, announced a note fired into the English camp by an archer on May the 5th. If not, I will make a war cry that will be remembered forever. Once again, the English laughed, but this time their laughter was decidedly less assured. At dawn on May the 6th, another Armagnac assault began, driven by a new zeal, which seemed almost visibly to radiate from the person of the Pucelle. As the English siege positions came under fierce attack, she rode around in the center of the fighting, the white standard fluttering as blood sprayed up around her. At one point, the blood was her own. An arrow, fired from an English-held tower, sliced through the flesh above one of her shoulders. God, however, was smiling upon his appointed agent, and Joan staggered on, almost oblivious to her wound, spurring the Frenchman forward. Relieving troops and liberated citizens alike swarmed over the English positions, capturing them one by one, slaughtering enemies, and sending waves of sheer panic through the living. At night, bells of celebration clanged and jangled from the churches of Orléans, wrung with glee by men and women who knew that they were winning their freedom. Within three days, the French had fully relieved Orléans, and the English were retreating up the Loire at such speed that they were forced to abandon their cannons and heavy weaponry as they went. The loss of Orléans began a serious collapse in the English position. Reinforcements were sent, but more strongholds began to fall along the Loire. On June the 18th, 1429, the confused English army was drawn into a battle at Pate, just north of Orléans, for which they were totally unprepared. They were annihilated by the French vanguard. More than 2,000 men were killed, and every captain save Fastoff was captured. In a matter of months, fortunes in occupied France had been dramatically reversed. The Dauphin's forces marched through Anglo-Burgundian territory, towns falling before them without a fight. On July the 16th, 1429, the Dauphin entered Reims, and the following day he was anointed with holy oil and crowned King Charles VII, with Joan of Arc standing proudly by the altar. All the genealogical propaganda in the world couldn't obscure the fact that France now had a ceremonially anointed king, and that he wasn't called Henry. The dreadful news from France was described in the minutes of the English Privy Council as diverse, great, and grievous adversities. It demanded an urgent response. There was one obvious course of action. In the first week of November, 1429, after a period of very hasty preparation, London and Westminster welcomed the young king, still only seven years old, to his English coronation. The ceremony by which kings were crowned was one of the most important spectacles in English political life, 
and it had become increasingly elaborate over the centuries since the Norman Conquest. In 1423, a book outlining the order of service for crowning French kings had come into the Duke of Bedford's hands, and the English ceremonial had been upgraded once again to give it Frankish pomp. Events took place over several days. The first stage was Henry's formal entry into the capital. The Friday, the 3rd of November, the king with his lords rode from Kingston over London Bridge, wrote the author of the Brute Chronicle, and the mayor and the aldermen, all in scarlet hoods, rode to meet the king. The citizens accompanied him to the Tower of London, where, the next evening, Henry sat in splendour to receive thirty-two young noblemen, who were ritually washed and dubbed knights of the Order of the Bath. On Sunday, he proceeded out of the tower to parade before his subjects and to make his way to Westminster Abbey for the coronation proper. He rode bareheaded through the cramped streets of the city, accompanied by his great lords, who were dressed for the most part in gold. Inside Westminster Abbey, a great scaffold had been erected to allow a good view to the congregation. Henry's mother, Catherine, and her ladies sat in pride of place near the altar, near the king's cousin, Pedro, Prince of Portugal, who had returned in haste to the country he had visited earlier in the decade in order to attend the ceremony. The Earl of Warwick carried Henry into the church, then led him up the scaffold to his seat in the centre, from where he surveyed the crowd around him, according to Gregory's chronicle, sadly and wisely. Henry Chichely, Archbishop of Canterbury, addressed the assembled realm, telling them Henry had come before God and the Holy Church, asking the crown of this realm by right and descent of heritage. The congregation gave a roar, throwing their hands in the air and crying, Ye, ye! while young Henry walked before the great altar and prostrated himself for a long time before it. What followed took hours. Throughout the ceremony, bishops gave readings and sang anthems over the king's body, while he was made to lie down, stand up, lie down and stand up again, as well as being undressed, redressed, and paraded around in the most elaborate costumes first girded with the spurs and swords of a warrior, then in a bishop's robes and sandals, before finally being arrayed in gleaming cloth of gold, with Richard II's crown placed on his head, since the traditional crown of Edward the Confessor was deemed too weighty for a seven-year-old. At the heart of the ceremony was the anointing, the most mysterious and permanent part of kingship, a rite that could never be undone. Henry stood in his undershirt, while his little body was touched systematically with a miraculous oil, said once to have been given by the Virgin Mary to St. Thomas Becket. Holy oil was poured from a golden eagle-shaped ampulla onto Henry's breast, and the midst of his back and his head, all across his two shoulders, his two elbows, and his palms of his hands. These were then dabbed with a soft white cotton cloth, while a white silken coif was placed on his head. It was to be worn for eight days, at the end of which a group of bishops would ceremonially clean Henry's head with lukewarm white wine. 
This was one of the least comfortable aspects of the coronation. Henry's grandfather, Henry IV, had developed head lice after he was crowned in 1399. After many hours of such solemn proceedings, capped by the celebration of the Mass, the newly crowned king processed from the Abbey to Westminster Hall for a feast, in which every dish carried messages about the splendour of Henry's dual kingship. The first course featured edible fritters decorated with fleur-de-lis, and a decorative subtlety showing Henry being carried by St. Edward the Confessor of England and St. Louis of France, his two holiest royal ancestors. The second course saw more tarts dusted with fleur-de-lis. The subtlety brought out with the third course featured Henry presented to the Virgin and Child, Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.